the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, Hannah sings praise to the Lord, and we meet High Priest Eli's wicked sons. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. Once again, that's 1 Samuel chapter 2, Verse 2. The Lord also, she declares, alone is the reliable one. Verse 2. There is none holy as the Lord. Therefore, there is none beside you. Neither is there any rock like our God. All other deities are the creation of men's minds, men's perverse minds. The Lord alone is real. So Hannah, she says, there is none holy like the Lord. There's no one like him. No one is reliable like him. There is none beside you, neither is there any rock like our God. God isn't moved from his character or his ability by anyone or anything else. He is steadfast and he is faithful at all times. Amen? Do you believe those things? Or do you look to yourself or to others, to solve your heartache. That's what Penina had done. Instead of taking her pain of being unloved by her husband to the Lord, she took matters into her own hands. She latched onto what she perceived as her ability to have children and used that to taunt Hannah. But that evaporated with just one word from God, right? All that was gone. And where did that leave her? Where did that leave Penina now? Having trusted in herself. It left her with nothing. Verse three, talk no more so exceedingly proudly and let not arrogancy come out of your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. That's a heavy statement. Talk no more exceeding proudly. It means don't have an exalted view of yourself. Now, obviously, for example, if someone challenges me to a game at ping pong, I am going to probably let you know you're likely to lose. I am very good at that. I mean, my, my brothers, we played it all of our lives growing up. And my brothers could beat me. My brother can beat me. He's not here. Otherwise, he'd be gloating. But, you know, most people can't. And that's not being prideful. That's just being accurate. But here it speaks of the idea of having an exalted view of yourself that is a moral failure. I don't think God wants us to walk around denying that we might be good at something. But the exalted view of yourself is when you start looking at things that have nothing to do with your ability at all, and you start boasting in them as if, yeah, well, I'm better than you. 
I'm always amazed what people think makes them better than someone else. I've always been fascinated by this idea, like you go into certain church environments and the ability to use spiritual gifts somehow makes you superior to others. Like I've always wondered why people felt proud of the fact that they could talk in a language that they didn't understand. It shocks me. I'm so spiritual. Elio Sunday who stole my Hyundai, untie my bow tie. Yeah. But you can't do that. Yeah, you have no clue what you just said. It doesn't make you any more spiritual. That's a gift from God. If it's truly a gift, if it's truly the gift that the Bible talks about, that's a gift from God. And there are many things in our lives that are just gifts from God. Let not arrogancy, she says, come out of your mouth. Arrogancy means to see yourself as superior, to be stubborn and self-willed in that superior view of yourself. She says, the Lord, he saw it all. He's a God of knowledge. And by him, actions are weighed. None of Panina's actions were hidden from the Lord. He saw her words, but he also saw her superior attitude and her self-willed response to her pain. My husband doesn't love me. I'm going to put this other woman down and elevate myself above her. And God says, I'm not okay with that. If you are taking matters into your own hands right now, lashing out at others because of your own heartache or your own frustration, God is not for you. He resists the arrogant, but gives grace to the humble. Repent, humble yourself, because that's where you'll find grace. On the other hand, if you remain in the other camp, you're going to find the Lord opposes you. Verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. Penina's mouth was her weapon. And so that was the bow that she used to fire arrows at Hannah. And she spoke those taunting words. Well, the Lord's broken those now. She can't use those anymore. And they that stumbled, the word there means to be in a state of destruction or ruin. That's Hannah. She was in this place of just awfulness. Well, now they are girded with strength. It means to be given strength by someone else. Listen. Trusting in yourself, your own ways, your own ideas to deal with the heartache, that may put you on top for a while. It might elevate you above that person that you think you should be elevated above. But that strength that you have to put yourself there, it is limited. You will meet your match at some point. And therefore, you will never truly eradicate your pain. On the other hand, God's strength is unlimited. And if he's the one who's strengthening you, if you're looking to him to raise you up, you can't lose. The Lord's strength is unlimited. Not only that, but the Lord has all resources. Verse five, they that were full, well, now they have to hire themselves out just to eat. They hire themselves out for bread. Those that were hungry, well, now they're not hungry anymore. They've ceased. So that the barren is born seven and she that has many children is waxed feeble. Penina was self-sufficient. That's what that word full means. It means to be content, satisfied. I've arrived. Penina was self-sufficient, but now, well, Hannah, she's got a child too. So all those resources, they've run out. She's going to have to look to something else to supply her needs since she won't look to the Lord to supply her need. But Hannah well, she's not hungry anymore because she looked to the Lord to supply her need, and he did. On the other hand, 
She that has many children is now waxed feeble. Listen, if you're looking inward to find your ammunition, whether that ammo is your looks, your strength, your possessions, or your position, that ammo eventually runs out. Only the Lord is all-powerful. Only the Lord has all resources. Therefore, he is the only reliable place to look for help. Verse 6. The Lord kills, makes alive. He brings down to the grave, and he brings up. The Lord makes poor, and he makes rich. He brings low, and he lifts up. He raises up the poor out of the dust, and he lifts up the beggar out from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. These three verses, six through eight, they all speak of God's sovereignty, that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and nobody can stop him. Now, real quick, one of the dangers when reading verses like these is to use them to show, well, that's God's character. He just kills or he makes alive. He kills or blesses arbitrarily just because it tickles his fancy. That is not Hannah's purpose in her praise here. I always get a little probably wrong, but frustrated, to be frank. When I see someone latch onto one of the attributes of God and all of a sudden make every other attribute of God subservient to that attribute, I always get frustrated because that ideology has more in common with the Greek pantheon than it does the God of Scripture. We must never think that one of God's attributes takes precedence over his other attributes or that God's attributes work separately from each other. That lowers God to the status of a bunch of Greek deities packed into one, the goddess of love, the god of this, the god of that. Deuteronomy 6.4 is very clear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He is a unity all of his attributes, all of the time. He is always love, just as he is always sovereign. He is always faithful, just as he is always good. He is always holy, just as he is always righteous. So God does not arbitrarily kill or save or bless or judge. God is love. He loves everyone. God is faithful, so he honors his promise to resist the proud but give grace to the humble. And God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to grant humanity the right to choose. And he respects our choices. That doesn't make God unsovereign. I hear people say that all the time. Well, then God's not sovereign. Really? So so you get to decide what God decides he can do? That sounds like you're sovereign. God, in his sovereignty, has decided how things work. And in his sovereignty, he said, I'm going to make man in my own image. I'm going to give them free moral agency. And then when they decide, if they decide to reject me, I'll respect that decision. Now, there's judgment to pay for that, of course. But the point is, is he's not going to make us do otherwise. Just as he doesn't make us believe. The Bible says to as many as believed in him, to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God. The choice is yours. It's mine. Now, that God is sovereign is so important to understand. See, all the situation that Hannah and Panina were in, where Panina was so elevated above Hannah, all God had to do was say, I'm changing that. And it was going to change. And nobody was going to stop it. Panina had forgotten about that. 
She had chosen to take matters into her own hands, and now, well, now she's greatly disappointed. Hannah humbled herself and turned to the Lord, and just like he promised, he raised her up. Well, Hannah, she doesn't just say the Lord is sovereign. She says the Lord is the only Savior, verse 9. And he will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. The word there, to keep, it means to care for, and it implies concern. The Lord is concerned about the feet of his saints. So the feet idea is the idea of stumbling. He's concerned about those who are faithful to him that their feet stumble. He cares for them. He watches over them so their feet don't. Now, that implies that on our own, we're not all that, right? That implies that on my own, I'm going to do a lot of stumbling and mumbling, right? That's what that implies. It says the Lord is the one caring for me to make sure I don't stumble. The implication is, is on my own, I'm going to do a lot of stumbling and bumbling. But you know what? Because the Lord does care for us, we're going to make it. Jude 24 and 25, it says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Isn't that an awesome promise? He's stronger. His ability to keep me on my feet is stronger than my ability to trip up my feet. And that is good news. That is good news. Now, in contrast, the wicked, they're going to be silent in darkness. The wicked, they just die alone because they've trusted in themselves. For by strength shall no man prevail. Their own strength may have gotten them ahead for a while like it did for Panina, but in the end, nothing. Now, at this point, Hannah looks beyond her situation and she shows where her ultimate hope lies. In the coming Messiah who would right every wrong and bring righteousness to the earth. Verse 10. She says, The adversaries of the Lord, they shall be broken in pieces. For out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. And he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The word there for adversaries, it means those who quarrel or bring a lawsuit against someone. In this case, the Lord. Those who don't like God's ways. Those who dispute, why should we listen to you, God? This will be the world's attitude under the Antichrist in the last days. In Psalm 2, it foretells this mindset in the last days. It says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their courts from us. That's the whole mindset of the world. We don't need you, God. We don't like your ways. We can do this fine without your ways. Hannah says, out of heaven, the Lord will thunder upon them. He'll judge the ends of the earth and he'll give strength unto his king. He'll exalt the horn of his, King James is anointed, but that's the Hebrew word, Mashiach. She's looking to the last days where the Messiah will come and fix this messed up world that we're living in. Psalm 2 goes on to describe exactly that. Why do the heathen rage? Well, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. You going to take me on? And then shall he speak unto them his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure, despite the rebellion. You'll say, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Referring to Jesus at the end, it says, kiss the son. 
lest he be angry with you. Repent. Make it right with him. She says, someday he will exalt the horn of his Messiah. He will give strength unto his king. Israel didn't have a king yet. She's thinking about the Messiah. The Messiah who she believed was coming, and that's what her ultimate hope was in, and of course, so ours should be as well. Verse 11 so Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. So Samuel stays there. That becomes his new home. And that means he's now around Eli's sons, who have the exact opposite attitude toward worship that Hannah has. Look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli, they were sons of Belial. It means wicked people. They knew not the Lord. Now, this is fascinating to me because Samuel's three, maybe four years old at this point in time. These are the examples of leadership, of men in ministry that he has to follow. These are his influences in his early life. Men in ministry who are wicked and who don't have a relationship with the Lord. And it's not like they were subtle in their wrong approach to ministry. Look at verse 13. And the priest's custom, the priest's practice or normal behavior, what these guys did, this was not God's command. This is what these guys did. They had made a new rule was that when any man brought his offering, he offered sacrifice, that the priest's servant would come while the flesh was still cooking, and he'd come with a flesh hook, a big fork with three teeth in his hand, and he would stick it into the pot, or kettle or cauldron or pot, and everything that the flesh hook brought up, well, the priest took for himself to go eat. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came there. It was all-you-can-eat buffet every day at the tabernacle for the priests. Now, that was not what God had said. These evil men had made this new rule. God had said in Deuteronomy 18, verse 3, that the priests were to get the shoulder and a couple other parts. In Deuteronomy 18, 3, this shall be the priests due from the people, from them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be an ox or a sheep. Doesn't matter what the animal is. They should give unto the priests a shoulder, the two cheeks, and the maw. That was their portion. That's what they were to survive on. That'd be like working somewhere and the boss buys you lunch every day. That's how you ate every day. They were to trust the Lord for the offerings that came in, and that's how they would eat. And then any excess would go out to the other families that were nearby that served the Lord, that were part of the Levites and part of the priests. But these guys, these guys said, no, whatever we put the fork in, whatever comes out, that's ours. Now, why is that a problem that they would take more? Well, because most offerings were designed to give a portion to God. Some would burn on the altar. The priest would eat some. And then the offerer would get to eat some too. And the idea was it was a special time where you're hanging out with the Lord and hanging out with his servants together. But now, well, there probably wouldn't be hardly anything left for you. Now you felt ripped off. There was no fellowship because you didn't have much, if anything, to eat. But the crazy thing is that wasn't even the worst of it. Look at verse 15. Also, before they burnt the fat, in other words, God's portion, the best portion, before they did any of that, the priest servant would come and he would say to the man that sacrificed, give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden, boiled flesh of you, but raw. He wants to do with it what he wants to do with it. And if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat first, and then you could take as much as your soul desires. Well, then the servant would answer him and go, no, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I'll take it by force. How would you feel if you came in on Sunday mornings and someone just said, hey, um, I need your offering now. 
They say, well, listen, that's for the Lord. They say, I know it's for the Lord, but we've got people to pay here. Well, that's fine. You know, when I give it, you know, you can put that towards the salary. No, I want it now. And if you don't do it, me and Bob and Billy over here, we're going to take it. Would you come back? I wouldn't. People weren't even being greedy here. They were saying to the pre-servant, listen, you can have as much as you want. It's just, I want to make sure the Lord gets his part first. But that wasn't even good enough for these guys. And they would resort to violence if you denied them their demand. Worship for these guys was a consumer experience. We have a right to these blessings because of our service to God. And when my worship looks like that, when it's not reflected in a humble, godly character, listen, that angers the Lord, number one, and it, number two, turns people off from worshiping him. Look at 17, verse 17. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, so he was upset, but here's why. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. The word to abhor, it means to despise something that you used to respect or that you used to think favorably about. People used to love coming to the tabernacle. They used to love coming to worship the Lord. And now they hated it. They despised it. They only did it because they had to. And they didn't want to deal with these losers. They didn't want to have to deal with their hypocrisy and their selfishness and their consumer attitude. And unfortunately, tragically, when I talk to people, that's why a lot of them don't want to come to church either. So you go and you sing your songs and you talk about your Jesus, but I look at your life and you certainly don't love me. And whereas the church used to be respected, now it's despised. Listen, there'll always be those in the world who hate us, but the scriptures teach that our godly conduct will affect most people's conscience in a positive way. You can read 1 Peter chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 4. It's got multiple verses that talk about that. I don't want my words or my actions to ever bring disrespect to my worship. I don't want people to see me as self-serving and self-righteous, as if both God and the world owes me something, something that I'll take by force if they won't give it to me willingly. Right now, I see the church clamoring for respect clamoring for our rights. You will treat me right. You will treat me with respect. I'm a child of God for crying out loud. Something I've taught my kids from day one. Trust and respect are things that are earned. They're not things that are given for free. Pastor Chuck tells the story of when he was at Bible college, he used to ride home on the bus. There was another gal that went to the same school with him. And she was just horrible. And every time she'd get off the bus, she'd go, I'm getting persecuted for Jesus. I'm getting persecuted for Jesus. And finally, one day he'd had enough. And he just looked at her and he said, you're getting persecuted because you're a jerk. Has nothing to do with Jesus. And too often, too often, I see a lot of people who don't act anything like Jesus, but who name his name. Lift up the hands, sing the songs, have all the bumper stickers, but their character is not like Christ. Does that describe your Christianity? Does that describe the influence of your faith? Guys, let it be said of us that we are like Hannah, like Samuel, as we'll get to learn to know him better, not like Eli's sons. 
Let's not have a consumer mentality towards worship, but let's have a true love and submission to the Lord. For when we have a true love and submission to the Lord, we obey his commands. And the second greatest command that he says is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now your neighbor, who's your neighbor? Well, it's everybody. It's your brother and sister in Christ. It's your spouse. It's your kids. It's your enemy. Let's love all of them. Let's be obedient to the Lord. Amen? Lord, we do want to give you our worship, not just in song, and not just in pretense, Lord. We want the outward expressions that we have through our voices, through our lifted hands, through our our bowed position, Lord, all those things, we want them to be reflective of an obedient life. Lord, one that rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep. Lord, Panina was going through such great pain. Lord, she tried to solve that pain on her own. So rather than weep with Hannah as she wept, she used that as leverage to raise herself up. Or let that not be said of us. Let us be like Hannah who look to you, who worship you simply because we love you and we trust in you. Trust you enough to do what you say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.